0: Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel, at GERD Help.
1: The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDhelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated.
2: Good evening, Facebook users, and welcome to our TIFF Talk Summer Series. My name is Karen Gerd, and I'm a Market Development Manager here at Endogastric Solutions. Tonight, we have the pleasure of having Dr. David Forcioni uh, here to discuss TIP GERD, and answer all of your questions. Uh, in addition, we have one of Dr. Forcioni's TIFF patients, Sandra Maynard. She is here to share her story and answer any questions uh, from the viewing audience. Also have my colleague, Wendy Prophet. Uh, Wendy will be monitoring the questions tonight. So viewers, please post your questions for Dr. Porcioni. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Forcione, Sandra, for being here tonight.
3: Thank you very much for having us. I think this is an outstanding platform and outstanding resource for patients who are suffering with these reflux symptoms and hopefully we can answer any and all of your questions today.
2: Fabulous. So uh, I want to introduce Dr. Forcion- Dr. Forcioni. He is a board-certified gastroenterologist who specializes in advanced interventional endoscopy and a member of the Center of Advanced Therapeutic Endoscopy at Baptist Health South Florida. He's also an associate professor of medicine at Schmidt College of Medicine at Florida Atlantic University. Very impressive, thank you for being here tonight.
3: Thank you so much.
2: All right, so let's kick off our program. We're gonna start off uh, tonight again with a new short segment uh, or icebreaker that we're gonna call Fill in the Blank. Perfect, so how it works is I'm going to prompt you with a question, uh, Sandra and Dr. Forcioni, or a statement and you're gonna fill in the blank and let us know why you chose that word. So the first two questions are for Dr. Forcioni, uh, but here's your question. Dr. Porciani, GERD is blank.
3: So GERD is many things to different people. Um, you know from from my perspective as a physician, when I'm talking to patients about GERD, I, I really try to stay away from um, restricting my definition of it because it really has a variety of different manifestations. Um, You know, the typical GERD symptoms are going to be heartburn, indigestion, uh, but you can also have patients who predominantly will have a cough or a sore throat or a raspy voice. And it's really all of those uh, potential symptoms uh, manifest in, in, in different patients depending upon the circumstances. So, It's important to remember that GERD is just not heartburn. It it has a variety of manifestations, so it's important to think about that when you're um, inquiring about treatment options.
2: Your next question, leaving, and you might have already answered this a little bit, leaving GERD untreated is blank.
3: I think I think it's largely a a really uncomfortable, potentially miserable way to live, uh, particularly nowadays where we have we have technology uh, and advancements in endoscopy uh, and surgery to to fix the underlying problem. Um, not only is it a, a bothersome constellation of symptoms for most people and for for many patients, it really affects the everyday quality of life. It affects, you know, many of the things that people enjoy in their day-to-day living, you know, food and dining, uh, to mention a few, but there are very serious medical consequences of reflux, untreated reflux, which can include narrowing of the esophagus and, and even potentially the development of esophageal cancer if left untreated for many years. So there's, there's quite a range of, of potential consequences, uh, but I truly think the most significant one is just the, the effects on your quality of life. Uh, you know, day after day having to deal with it, having to take medications, having to take remember to take your your antacid pills when you go out to dinner, and restricting what you can eat. So for, I think it's predominantly a, a real significant quality of life issue.
4: It's really, really miserable. It it can be a life of misery. It can make you not want to eat, not want to go to bed because you're just going to have a miserable, miserable night and not want to wake up in the morning and start it all over again.
2: Yes, I can only imagine. And we're looking forward to uh, just kind of hearing your journey and your story um, from, you know, living with with GERD to your post-TIF procedure and how you are uh, feeling now. But so let's, um, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, Dr. Forciani, I want to get started with a few questions. Um, can you kind of educate our viewers on the difference between uh, occasional acid reflux and chronic GERD?
3: So like, like many things in medicine, um, the condition of of gastroesophageal reflux or GERD is a spectrum. So there are many, many, many patients who have, you know, very intermittent symptoms. And, and I would bet that most of us on the panel have intermittent reflux if, you know, you overeat or eat the wrong thing, you know, the very occasional reflux. But for for patients that are suffering on a regular basis, meaning having um, you know more than twice a week symptoms requiring uh, typically over the counter antacids or, or regular medications, that's what we would consider in the, the chronic uh, reflux category. Uh, but you know, as I said earlier, it's it's a constellation of symptoms, and it, it may not just be the heartburn. You may have more of the, the respiratory symptoms, the cough, the sore throat, the, the uh, abnormal or unusual taste in your mouth, uh, the coughing at night, uh, the raspy voice, the regurgitation. When you bend over, you feel food is, is coming up on you, liquids are coming up on, uh, come up on you. Um, so, you know, patients may not recognize those as heartburn or GERD symptoms, but those are all manifestations of the same problem. And, and what we now know is that it, it really is a mechanical problem. It's, it's not a, an issue of, well, my body makes too much acid or my body doesn't digest properly. It's a mechanical problem of the anatomy. And you can, you know, you can take all the medicines in the world and it doesn't fix the underlying problem. It's just a band-aid effect. And I'm not saying that medications are are not part of the treatment options, uh, particularly for the very intermittent, uh, you know, pa- patients with very intermittent symptoms. But we have to remember that that GERD uh, is much more than acid. It's It's a variety of of injurious chemicals that our body makes, bile, acid, digestive enzymes, even just the food we eat is an irritant uh, to the esophagus. And at its very basic uh, premise, this is a mechanical problem with the way the esophagus and the stomach interact. It's a very complex mechanism. um, And we know in patients who have significant Chronic GERD symptoms—it's almost always a mechanical, anatomic problem. And we now have the, you know, the power to reverse that and restore it to its, uh, its native, its, its native anatomy, what it's supposed to be.
2: Thank you for that explanation. And and you you kind of just mentioned um, it is a mechanical issue. Can you, um, you know, kind of go into? Uh, you know, fixing that mechanical issue and a little bit more about the tiff procedure that was a good segue
3: sure so you know if you think about how we how we digest and you know how we swallow food and liquids obviously the esophagus is the the conduit when you swallow food or liquid it goes down that tube called the esophagus and it has to get through that tube to get into the stomach Under ideal circumstances, what goes into the stomach stays in the stomach, and that includes what you eat, what you drink, and what your body makes. Your body makes the acid, your body makes bile, your body makes digestive enzymes to break down those products, but the goal is for all of that to stay in your stomach and not to flow backwards up in your esophagus. Our body, uh, like with many parts of our body, is extremely intelligent and it was made it, it was made to to deal with all of these stressors that it's uh, that it faces over the course of a day and and it's it's evolved to have a valve mechanism. And what that means is uh, after you eat and drink, those contents are supposed to be secured in your stomach by a valve mechanism, which means that you're You have uh, tone or muscle contractions at the bottom of your esophagus. You have the diaphragm working with that muscle, basically all to prevent those contents from coming up in your esophagus. Your esophagus does not like to have those things coming back up on it, and that's why it will hurt. That's why it will feel abnormal. And potentially, those contents can come up and irritate your, your airway and your vocal cords. Uh, and cause those types of symptoms. So our body is designed to have a one-way valve. It goes in, but it doesn't come back up. The whole purpose of the TIF procedure is to take those patients who have abnormal valve mechanism, meaning they have a weakness of that valve, so that even though it can go into the stomach, there's just a higher frequency and propensity for it coming back up. And there's a lot of reasons why that valve fails but at the end of the day, correcting the valve is an excellent way of restoring the normal valve function and preventing uh, reflux-type uh, symptoms from having, happening. So at its basis, the TIF procedure is basically an endoscopic way. It's all done incisionless. There's no skin incisions involved with the, the fundoplication part. Um, it's a way to restore that valve function. We tighten the valve between the stomach and the esophagus. And that prevents the reflux of all of those injurious chemicals and food substances.
2: Uh, what a, thank you so much for that information. We, are, we have got tons of questions and people want to, uh, to hear your answers. So we're going to go to Wendy who uh, has some questions from our viewers.
1: Yes, thanks everybody for sending these in. Uh, Dr. Porcioni, I have Regina asking if insurance can cover this type of surgery.
3: That's a great question. So um, most insurers do now cover the TIF procedure. It's a little bit variable depending upon where you live and what your insurance coverage is. Um, But increasingly there has been uniform adoption by insurance companies Uh, to cover the procedure. Um, I can give you an example that Medicare, uh, which is what most most individuals will carry after the age of 65, fully covers the procedure. And what I have found is uh, very little resistance uh, to insurance coverage. Uh, Occasionally we have to go through some approval processes, but it's not an obstacle to pursuing the procedure. Uh, And I I personally have never had a patient get denied or have to pay out of pocket for it. So, um, you know, the insurance companies are smart. They're starting to see this as an excellent alternative to chronic medication therapy. You know, if you look at it from an economic perspective, it costs a heck of a lot more for insurance companies to pay for chronic antacid medicines. You know, we're talking over decades, you know, for some patients as opposed to a one-time procedure And so, looking at it from an economic perspective, which you know is unfortunately is what most insurance companies do, they they realize that this is the smart choice. And not only is it the smart economic choice, it's the best choice for most patients is to have a a repair, a mechanical repair of the valve.
1: Very good. Thank you. Uh, also, we have Madeline writing in asking, I was told by my gastroenterologist yesterday that there is no remedy for silent acid reflux. Any thoughts?
3: So silent acid reflux um, is, has different meanings and in, in different contexts. So I, most people, when they make reference to silent acid reflux, these are patients that don't have typical heartburn regurgitation type symptoms. They have more of the respiratory, um, vocal cord type symptoms and they'll only complain about a cough or sore throat, raspy voice. They don't feel the, the common heartburn type symptoms. and. So they're, they're often diagnosed, oftentimes by ear, nose, and throat doctors, as having silent reflux because they don't have the typical symptoms. Um, but that is a real um, you know, s- symptom complex that patients suffer from. It can be as debilitating uh, as the run-of-the-mill reflux, heartburn-type symptoms, and it, it can have very serious consequences um, for recurrent pneumonia, bronchitis, uh, you know, type symptoms. Uh, we've had patients who you know make their living out of you know acting and singing, and when they when they don't have a voice, there goes their you know their their job opportunities. And so that can be a very meaningful symptom for for patients. So that's what people refer to as silent reflux. It, it is it is sort of technically silent, but it's it's it has true physiologic consequences to the patient so it's a bit of a misnomer it just means that we can't recognize it by traditional symptoms it doesn't mean it shouldn't be treated and it actually should be treated very aggressively perhaps even more aggressively than your run-of-the-mill reflux symptoms because the airway complications can be you know very very significant
1: gosh i didn't even think about the airway complication that's a great point Um, I have Carmen asking, does TIF work for non-acidic reflux?
3: That's uh, a, it's a very good question. So, you know, it, it's just important to remember that reflux does not mean acid reflux. So reflux just means that gastric stomach contents are coming up into the esophagus at a disproportionately high frequency and high volume. And that leads to symptoms. and uh, acid is just one component. The other major components are are bile and digestive enzymes. Remember, your stomach makes enzymes to break down food. Acid is not the only component of that digestive process. And this is this is actually a a, a very important uh, issue. And this is one of the reasons why not everybody responds to antacid medicines because. Uh, many of their symptoms could be related to non-acidic components. And unfortunately, we don't actually have any medications that reliably have neutralizing effects on bile or digestive enzymes. So the only medication class we have are antacids. And you have to remember, that's only a fraction of what people reflux. There's all sorts of things that people reflux This is a common reason why people have refractory symptoms or they still have symptoms despite adequate antacid medications or they have breakthrough. You know, they're taking their Meprazole, but they still have to take Tums on top of that or Gaviscon. This is exactly the reason because it's not just acid.
1: That's so interesting. Thank you. Um, We have uh, we have. Um, sorry, I have to jump back up here because I I went too far down on my screen. Uh, We have Matt Matt asking, how long does it take to take a patient to find relief without
3: PPIs after a TIF? So it it can be, it's quite variable, I would say. So in my own practice, and there's a lot of variability as to when uh, clinicians will discontinue you know, the patient's usual antacid regimen. Uh, in my own practice, I continue patients on all of their same medications for the first three months after the procedure. And the re- one of the reasons is that um, as part of the protocol for patients undergoing the procedure, we do want them to be on a on a specific diet regimen. And I'm I'm, I'm so glad that Sandra is here Today, she's really the star of the show. She's the one that um, has has gone through the procedure. She's had a successful recovery, and I and I hope the audience really takes advantage of of her wealth of knowledge as not only a patient but a a, a very uh, a somebody who has uh, very intensely uh, researched the procedure and really understands it. Uh, I think actually more than uh, many of the gastroenterologists uh, that. Uh, that are probably uh, seeing patients with this. So I ho- hope the audience um, takes advantage of her wealth of knowledge. Uh, but uh, just getting back to the question, my my own practice is to continue it for three months after the procedure. we We recommend a diet regimen for about six weeks to seven weeks after the procedure, and the goal of that is to allow the healing process to um, to take effect in its most optimal way for the sutures that we place, the placations to take effect. Um, And that's why I continue the medicines. I want the healing to happen in in an optimal environment uh, as possible. And then everybody so far at three months, I begin the taper. um, And I usually, you know, cut it down in half at three months. And then uh, four to six weeks later, we cut it down again. And so I tell patients, you know, by the end of the year, and this is based on, you know, official research data um, that's been published, and there are many publications on the procedure now, um, having going back now, I think, what, 14 years, 13 years, the procedure's been FDA approved, um, that 80%, over 80% of patients will be off all medications by a year, and, and that's, that's been my experience as well.
2: Thank you, Dr. Forcioni. Um, that is such a great transition. I um, would love now for um, Sandra. Sandra, thank you again for joining. Thank you. We would love, um, you know, as you said, um, you uh, are, are one of his patients that has had, you know, extremely uh, great success. And we'd love to hear kind of your journey, if you don't mind sharing with all of our viewers, because I'm sure they'll have a lot of questions.
4: Thank you. When I was a young, I'm 77 years old. When I was a young woman in my, and I, I was 19 when I had my first baby. I was finished with my three children by 23. I had probably would call it heartburn during my pregnancy. I'd never had it again till many, many years later, uh, until the 90s. My father, however, died in 1983 of esophageal cancer, and it scared me. And at first, I believe he had Barrett's disease, and it progressed. If I'm not mistaken, I, I was pretty naive about it. But he he died a pretty rapid, miserable death uh, with esophageal cancer. So the first times I started having heartburn, I... I looked for a a gastroenterologist here in my town of Lake Worth and I found a champion uh, in in that doctor and he he knew I was worried and he said, we're going to check you and he said, I promise you this, you're not going to die of esophageal cancer. I'm going to keep an eye on you. Well, you talked about the economic impact of GERD and I'll tell you, undergoing endless endos, endoscopies uh and every other test are expensive tests plus they're hard on your body it's no fun to keep going under uh anesthesia to have those things and uh he saw that i had some issues and i he did so many tests on me he did the bravo study he i had monography i had am i saying that right dr force monometry
3: monography Manometry. Manometry. yeah yeah
4: where they checked my swallowing. I did have low manometry scores. uh, And and we just could not get this taken care of. I was on PPIs for about 17 years. And he kept telling me, you do not want to stay on these. And he would try to wean me off them. And I I was too miserable. I was eating hands, uh, every purse I had had Tums, Gaviscon, uh, Rolades, And sometimes we'd have to pull over on the side of the road for a 7-Eleven to find Rolades or something to Mm -hmm. give me just temporary relief. I was so miserable with GERD symptoms. And uh, finally he said, you know, there is a surgery for this, Sandra, that I think will suit you. Well, I started looking into different esophageal uh, cures and, and not cures, but treatments for this surgery wise. scared the heck out of me and then he said there's one that i think you should investigate it's called tiff said all right he said i was 75 at the time he said i'll tell you what i might have a problem finding a surgeon who wants to do surgery on you at your age you're very healthy i uh i was a bike rider i'm active i'm cheerful but i was old and uh One day, he called, he said, I found somebody in Boca Raton, Dr. Forzioni. He said, I think he's going to be the perfect match for you. And I went, and it was at a time, Dr. Forzioni, it took a really long time from my first appointment to getting the surgery. I think there was some uh, issues with the mechanical uh, things going on. By the time he gave me a date for this surgery, you'd think I was going to the prom.
1: I was so excited and
4: so happy. And um, he did the surgery in January. And I'll tell you, I did follow his recommendations and stay on the PPI. He gently weaned me off them. But I never, ever have had heartburn, GERD, or any kind of regurgitation since. Before that, when I was suffering so, I would – it was especially bad at night, I suppose, after I ate. I knew to eat. We changed our dinner times. I was eating dinner at 4.30, no fun, so that I could have a lot of time to digest my food before I went to bed. And I would get in bed, and it it would just start coming up. And I'll tell you, it was like probably – would feel much the same as if you drank Drano it was so so miserable so acidic I just felt like I was raw well uh Dr. Forcion put me through some tests and discovered that I had he said a very large hiatal hernia I believe we you said it was between six and seven centimeters that I needed to have repaired along with the tip and I just decided to throw all my confidence to Dr. Forcioni and let him guide me. And I went in saying, we're gonna get this fixed. I'm gonna have my life back. We, At our house, we are great cooks. My husband was in the Air Force. We've lived in a lot of places. I've lived in Japan, Italy, Hawaii, Germany, and many places in the States. So we are used to a really big diet We learned how to prepare those foods. No fun at all when you can't eat them. Be honest with you, I enjoy a beer. I enjoy a cocktail, love chocolate. Off the charts for me. No tomato based anything. Spaghetti could send me into 24 hours spasms. It's one of my favorites. So I, I had the surgery. Ta-da! It was a miracle. It really was. I had been on an antidepressant before I saw Dr. Forcioni. Uh, I I spoke with my doctor, and he agreed that I could, if I was feeling better, my health was better, I could try weaning myself off those, and so I did. I haven't had one since. Uh, A lot of things changed in my life for the good. The diet after the surgery... I thought I had a bad diet, no fun diet before. The diet after the surgery was not fun at all. My husband's a great cook, and he was really, really creative and and tried so hard to find things that appealed to me. When I went into surgery, I think I weighed about 134 pounds. I'm 118-ish now. I haven't gained any of the weight back. I eat really healthy. I regularly ride my bicycle 20 miles at a time. Uh, I walk my dog twice a day, a, a mile each time. Uh, so it, it gave me back my life. And I, at 75, I was pretty much saying, I don't want to keep doing this.
2: Sandra, that's so wonderful to hear. And I know there's so many people out there listening, you know, tonight that do, you know, feel the same way. And I hope that, you know, your story as, you know, let them know and encourage them that there, there are other options. Um, I know you mentioned, um, Sandra, that you did have a hiatal hernia and Dr. Forcioni um, fixed that. Dr. Forcioni, could you uh, just touch on a minute on, 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 uh, hiatal hernia repair with the TIF procedure and and if the recovery is different versus a a straight TIF?
3: Great, great question. Um, So, hiatal hernias are very common, just just so people understand what a hiatal hernia is. Uh, That is when a portion of the stomach is actually pulled up into the chest cavity. Normally, the entire stomach is supposed to sit in the abdomen. Sort of below the chest, but what we call below the diaphragms. When people have hiatal hernias, that means part of the stomach has been pulled up into the chest. And that is a common finding, but it's also a risk factor for having more significant reflux. It doesn't mean that uh, everybody with reflux has a hiatal hernia, but there's a clear correlation uh, between the two. So it's been, it's been, uh, it's well known that in order to optimize the anti-reflux barrier, the valve mechanism, as we as we call it, uh, having uh, having a normal anatomic alignment of the stomach is is optimal. So I would say about two thirds of patients um, will have the need for a hiatal hernia repair as part of the TIFF procedure. It's done as a simultaneous operation. So we fix the hernia first and then do the, the fund application or the valve repair uh, as a secondary procedure. Um, I would say, certainly in my practice, I think in most practices, without exception, that's done as a minimally invasive procedure. It's either laparoscopic or robotic uh, in, in the technique. Um, And it takes usually between 45 minutes to an hour and a half to do the hernia repair and another 30 to 45 minutes to do the valve repair. So um, the entire duration is about an hour and a half to two hours uh, to do everything for most patients. In most settings, it actually doesn't change the recovery for most patients. Um, I I do believe, Sandra, you stayed a couple of days in the hospital um after a your procedure strange
4: things happen i i got a little for some reason i showed up with a, with a little kidney infection uh yeah. when i was in there and uh i think i had a little respiratory infection yeah from,
3: but i had old. some asthma yeah so most patients we so certainly if there's a a, a tiff only no hernia repair all of those patients go home right after the procedure Um, If patients have both the hernia repair and the TIF procedure, um, I would say still the majority of those patients go home. I I sort of leave it up to the patient. We kind of assess how they feel after the procedure. Most patients, if it's a stay, it's an overnight stay, and very few patients will need more than, you know, Tylenol after the procedure as part of the recovery. Um, But what's not in pain... Yeah, pain uh, is not a Minimal,
4: minimal pain. Uh,
3: yeah.
4: Actually, and I have no incisions.
3: Yes. So that's uh, clearly a benefit uh, of the procedure. I do think it is important, um, you know, for those of us who do these procedures, we really carefully evaluate patients for hernias because that's a potential reason. Uh, why a anti-reflux procedure or TIF procedure alone may not be completely effective. So uh, if we do identify a hernia, uh, we, we generally do recommend fixing that as well because restoring the normal anatomy is really critical for the valve, valve repair to work. It, it's, it's all a symbiotic, everything works together when the stomach is in its normal alignment.
4: Can I say also when I had that stomach and my chest cavity, I don't know if there's any correlation. As I said, I don't have any medical background. It seemed like I I had a lot of pressure in my uh, upper abdomen. I I felt a lot of pressure, and I felt a little breathless often. Mm
3: -hmm. I haven't, haven't had that. Yeah, uh, that that is I a common search. symptom in patients who have a large large hiatal hernia. Is it actually can compress the lungs and it can affect respiratory function. Not to mention the you know the regurgitation and, and and the reflux type symptoms. So, in general, the larger the hernia, the more symptomatic uh, patients are. And um, really, with with very few exceptions, there isn't a an anatomy that precludes the TIFF procedure. So, kind of no matter how big the hernia is, it it can still be done. Um, we, you know, just as I said, we fix the hernia first and then do the fundoplication, and it, it all works together quite beautifully to restore the normal valve function.
4: I also would like to add: I was not really quick to return to my normal routine. I I understood what was going on inside with these procedures and that there was a great deal of swelling. I rested a lot I fell in love with Netflix my iPad my elevated bed I had the beautiful opportunity to really rest uh, to eat very very carefully I ate minuscule amount many times a day uh, I found that certain things affected my whole system, gave me dumping syndrome. That was mostly from sugar. My, mm-hmm. my weakness was uh, sugar. So I learned to even restrict fruit juices. Uh, my stomach got back to normal. Um, I'm, in, I'm in great shape.
3: I, yeah, just, just to kind of catch on what you were saying about the weight, um, and I, I think this is the experience of most practitioners who do this. Most of our patients actually do lose weight after the procedure, and I've seen, you know, I would say on average it's about 10 to 15 pounds. I've seen a couple of patients have more than that. It's It's not meant to be a weight loss surgery uh, by any means, but because of the dietary modifications that are highly, highly recommended after the procedure for the first six weeks. And I also think because we're restoring the anatomy to a normal alignment, um, people feel full faster. Um, I, I can't really say that that's a permanent fix, but for a lot of patients, it jumpstarts their their journey on their weight loss. And people you know that that's one of the things they tell me when I see them at follow-up is you know am I supposed to be am I have I am I supposed to have lost this weight, and I I, I do advise them and guide them before the procedure that they will lose uh, weight and for unfortunately for many Absolutely. of us that's a good thing. When
4: I saw, so, I saw so, you for my pre-op, I told you I was thinking of the keto diet, and you said hold off on the diet. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and I'm glad I did because yeah. I didn't want yeah. to get underweight.
3: Yeah.
4: And as I say, I could not eat much. I still don't eat much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I eat much smaller portions. Uh, my husband often will have a, a lovely grilled hamburger. I've convinced him now instead of a hamburger for me I'll have slider and he makes me a little little tiny hamburger uh, and yeah. and that that's all I need. That's all I want. And uh, yeah.
3: Yeah. No, it's interesting they say that because I, I do think going through the whole process from pre-op to the procedure to the post op, people think about their whole sort of process of eating and drinking and they they sort of relearn what the right technique is. And most patients after undergoing this are so satisfied with their outcomes they don't want to go down that pathway again of Doing things that they know will promote reflux, which is generally overeating, eating the wrong foods, and it, it's kind of a, a, a sort of a, a, a re-education of of the process um, of, of eating and digestion. And, and people are able to maintain that because they feel so good and they don't want to revert back to their their, their old ways. No, absolutely.
1: That's interesting. I. I actually just had a question. If I can jump in for a second, a, a couple, of, couple of questions that I, I think fall into this this track is, you know, number one is is the goal really after TIFF to return to a normal diet. And what I'm hearing you say is you, you need to really relearn what is is going to be right for you. And I would guess that that differs by individual, but also, if you have any thoughts on that, Dr. Porcioni, please, please share. And then after, Sandra, um, we, we have a, a question about what worked, what foods worked really well for you uh, regarding the diet postoperatively? What were the things that you saw helped you feel, you know, f- like just fulfilled, but also at the same time didn't make you feel bad?
3: That's an excellent question, and one that we get very often um, when we have this initial preoperative discussion about what the procedure can do for you. And I, I really try to remind patients that this is not a license to, you know, go into an unhealthy way of eating. Um, I, I really try to transmit to them that this is not you know, a free path to uh, eating foods and, and eating volumes of foods that will promote reflux. No matter how good the anatomy is, how tight the valve is, you can you can beat it by overeating and eating the wrong food. So we still really um, try to impart on the patients that this is going to reset your anatomy back to the way it's supposed to be. You're going to be able to enjoy foods much more than you used to be but this is not a free ticket to um, eat the foods that we know will cause reflux, even if the anatomy is completely perfect. So it's it, you know sometimes hard for patients to sort of acknowledge that because they want to just sort of dive back in. But it, it's really it's it's really important to remind them that um, you, we still need to be cautious with. Um, avoiding and restricting things, you know, foods and liquids that we know no matter how good the anatomy is. And so the ones that I always come to my mind are carbonated beverages, Um, sodas. Anything with carbonation will promote reflux. And, uh, you know, happens to me all the time. If I drink a carbonated beverage, I'll I'll have reflux. But, um, you know, uh, chocolate is another one. Alcohol and caffeine can also promote... Um, but certainly I do tell patients, you know, after the procedure, yes, you can have coffee. Yes, you can have, you know, uh, alcohol, but it's not a, it's not a free pass to, you know, drink in excess or to eat in excess. Um, but your quality of life almost universally will be better with restoration of the anatomy.
4: That's so interesting. Thank you. I, there were several foods that I decided I could do without one, one of them is carbonated beverage rarely rarely uh, I'll drink an almost flat coke uh, I'm from Georgia I grew up drinking coke, coke. and uh, yes. and i and as I confessed earlier I really enjoy beer I have my beer at lunch <laughs> Uh, generally early in the day so I'm not going to bet on that I do not eat big bites of anything that they've talked about esophageal spasms I'm not sure I even knew what it was but I knew that pressure and I knew that came from eating too fast eating too large a bite of anything I when, when I say I chew my food, let me tell you, Gerber's has nothing on me. I pulverize every bite that goes down. I, I really want to take care of my body now. It, it feels great. And so uh, things that I ate, first of all, I bought a hand immersion blender. I blended everything for weeks. I, I like Quaker oatmeal. My husband would make oatmeal and he'd blend the hell out of it. It was it was probably like drinking oat milk. Uh, I really watched sugar. I would have a little manuka honey in it uh, and and I would have a little sweetener in it. That was one of my favorite things. Uh, As I was able to start eating soft foods, soft scrambled eggs were good. I'm a Georgia girl love my grits so I often had grits uh, we made wonderful wonderful mild soups with vegetables minimal tomato in that uh, minimal onion minimal garlic and pureed it I, uh, a mild bisque of anything is great I would cut it with a little milk a little half and half By the time I got back to healing enough to have a normal diet, I I really enjoyed cream soups. Like cream of chicken was one of my favorites. Even Campbell's cream of chicken, I ran it through the blender. Just minimal chunks. And I think that really helped my healing process. As I say, lots and lots of rest mild exercise walking. I, uh, Dr. Forciani told me to try not to be lifting anything uh, for the first several weeks. Not that I was much of a lifter anyway, but I, I just watched it. And uh, that's a major surgery. I know you don't have an incision, but your body goes through a lot with that surgery. And as I said, the more and more I read about it, the swelling that goes inside after you have a procedure like that, you've gotta give yourself time to heal. So I did allow myself time to heal. And if you have the luxury of taking it easy for a few weeks after the surgery, I think you'll be better off. And my long-term results have been great. Uh, I had this a year ago, January, I went through COVID, uh, and I'm healed nicely.
2: That's so wonderful. To hear that. I'm There's...
4: still careful. Excuse me. I'm still careful eating bread and meat because those things are just hard to go down. And uh, I try not to overeat, so I don't even want to drink a lot of liquid when I'm eating. So I moderate that.
2: It just, we love hearing hearing your story and we're so happy that you uh, are feeling so great now um and we just we know that you know a lot of people are watching you um you know stay tuned sandra is uh telling her story on our girdhelp.com facebook page so please continue to follow her and uh hear about her story um we're going to go ahead and wrap it up but Dr. Forcioni do you have any last words for our viewers and any tips uh, you know for success for living GERD free?
3: Yeah I, I think my my biggest uh, piece of advice is is to take it seriously and realize that you don't have to live this way there are you know options there are alternatives to medications And it's not a one-size-fits-all. I'm not saying that this is for every single patient out there, but if you're struggling with symptoms or you're concerned about the side effects or you're tired of taking medications all the time, if you've changed the way you're living because of it, I I really encourage you to have a discussion with your gastroenterologist. Um, This is now a well-established procedure. You know, we're talking... 25,000 plus procedures done, very, very impressive safety profile, and we, we didn't get into that part of it, but an extremely safe uh, procedure, you know, uh, again, bringing back to the point of you know, most patients go home right after the procedure. That That is an, a very unusual aspect, you know, for, for virtually any kind of, of surgery. So, you know, we're talking about a safe and effective option, but um, you know, I just encourage you to to talk to your physician. They they will know about this. If they don't know about this, you know, you can educate them about it, um, and and really seek out somebody in the area that can offer these these services. And I and I think in most parts of the country there are people that are trained uh, in doing this and are experts at doing this. Uh, just just don't live. Just don't live in isolation. You don't have to live like this, um, you know, for the rest of your life. And, and take action and get your life back.
2: Wonderful. And then, Wonderful. and then, Sandra, do you have any last party words for our viewers? Anything that
4: find the right doctor. I know I did. You can let if you're in the Florida area. I recommend letting Doctor Fort your hero too. <laughs>
2: Wonderful. If you are are in uh, the South Florida, Boca Raton area, you know, Dr. Forcioni is there. If you're located outside Florida and, and like you said, look for a TIF-trained physician in your area, you can find them on our physician locator at uh, GERDhelp.com. Again, we thank you both so much for joining us and um, you gave a very informative uh, talk tonight. And thank you so much for joining And, Facebook viewers, we will see you next week on our next TIFF Talk.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDHELP.com or download our Help mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD help, live well, GERD free.